Hello, Cortez. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and today we have Folk You Friday Radio. I, or so I hope. Hopefully, you're hearing me. This is uh, um, my second live call in show where we're bringing Folk You Fridays to the radio. Um, so, you know, things might go wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have um, some speakers here today with me, and um, I'm getting feedback that I may perhaps already be doing some things not quite right, but we're, we're, we're getting there. So welcome. Welcome, neighbors. Welcome to the Folk You Friday talk show on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, or on the web at cortezradio.ca. Folk University, what is that? It's an experiment. It's an experiment in slow learning. It's a living question. It asks, in these divisive times, can we use our ideas, our interests, and our skills to bring us closer together, make us more resilient as individuals and a community? You can participate in this experiment every Friday from 1 to 3 when we ask one of our neighbors to share some of their ideas and interests on Cortez Community Radio. And we ask you to call in, share your questions, little tidbits of information that you may have, or just ideas for future topics. Or you can just call and tell me that I'm not speaking into that microphone enough or I need to turn up the other person. That's all fine. And who knows? Maybe I'll even be able to answer the phone. Okay, so today we have two speakers here very far apart, not anywhere close to me or, or each other. So we'll see how this goes. Um, Mark Lombard and Eli McKenty. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about what it would mean for Cortez to be resilient. So um, I am turning the second microphone on and I am welcoming Mark Lombard who is going to uh, begin by introducing himself and telling us a little bit more about his background. Hi, Mark. Hi, Amanda. Nice to be here with you at Folk U, Cortez Radio. Um, and nice to be here with Eli McKenty as well. Um, uh, just with respect to the resiliency question, my background uh, is in green building and specifically building energy efficiency. And I've really focused my, my building career and the design side on passive solar design and passive systems where houses use less electricity just on their own and it makes them more resilient because they're, they take less resources to heat and cool and operate over time. Uh, and I also want to talk a little bit about food resilience and food systems and sort of like local food policy. I even wrote down questions this week, so I may remember to ask you about all those things. Okay, good. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about Climate Help, uh, Climate Hope and the Cortez Resiliency Group that you are part of? Sure. Um, a couple months ago, Karen Carrington and some others, Nova Anderson, convened a, a little group called the Cortez Physical Resiliency Group. And the idea was under the auspices of, of you know, a change in climate and, and the disruptions that that may cause, they asked us to have a little look and conversation about 
resiliency on Cortez from a physical side. There were other people looking at emotional and policy, and but we were asked to look specifically at physical resiliency. And it's pretty interesting because we started talking about this and it was before the pandemic was known as such. So we were talking about the potential of an earthquake disrupting the ferry for a month or a longer term shutdown where the ferries didn't run and it wasn't focused around a pandemic. And then in the interim, events have overtaken us and none of us were they're thinking about how to deal with the pandemic. So we, we, you know, we kind of faded back a little bit from the, from having meetings all the time. But um, I think a lot of the conversation that we were having about how to make the island more resilient is kind of relevant. Can you tell me a little bit about what your vision would be for a more resilient or sustainable Cortez? It's a good question. It's a big question. Um, about a decade ago, there was a, um, an energy audit of the island that was done as part of the gas tax funding project. And we basically were looking at how to make Cortez more sustainable under the auspices of climate change and energy resilience. And I remember that we ended up breaking things down into, into building operation, the energy use for buildings, the energy use for transportation and food systems. And I don't think much has changed around that. I would say that, Working around, working to figure out how to use less energy for transporting ourselves on the island, as well as bringing things and people to the island. How to make our island more food self-sufficient, like it was a hundred years ago. And so that's food, that's transportation, and then buildings. How do we make our buildings use less electricity, use less wood heat, use less propane? And I think those are still you know, kind of core, core issues. I would just add to that around, around energy and transportations and buildings. I'm not just talking about having your, your house have slightly better windows or slightly better insulation or a more passive solar design where you get solar gain in the spring and the fall in the winter when you need some heating, but then your, your overhangs on your house provide shade so that it doesn't overheat in the wintertime. I'm also talking about how we develop our community. So, for example, with Manson's Landing, if we had more people living within biking and walking distance of the downtown core, then we use a lot less transportation energy because people don't have to get in their car to drive to work. And the, and the benefits of clustering housing are not only around saving energy, but they make people healthier because they walk a little bit. And it also builds the resiliency in, in a social aspect because people, when they're walking and biking to work and to school and to the store, they see their neighbors and they run into their, their friends on the sidewalk and they can chit-chat about this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, oh, I'm working in my garden and I need this tool, but I don't have it. And it's like, oh, I have that tool. And, and so you create these little, these little uh, opportunities for cooperation and collaboration and getting to know each other just by, just by the sensitive design of the, of the, of the uh, communities. Um, big picture, more resilient Cortez. I think if we could get a little bit better at saving seeds and sharing those, if we could get a little bit better at uh, storing food, so having potentially neighborhood greenhouses or neighborhood root cellars where people in one neighborhood without having to drive all the way across the island could collaborate on things. So making our little individual neighborhoods a little bit more um, resilient food-wise. A neat example is in Portland, Oregon, they have a potato co-op it started as a potato co-op where a few neighbors had potatoes growing in their yard where everybody worked together on it. And then over the years, it grew out to doing squash and 
parsnips and turnips and carrots where one person's or two people's yard had potatoes plus their own vegetables and then another person's yard had the co-op's carrots and then another one had the parsnips you kind of get this economy of scale where not every individual household is trying to grow every vegetable but you're 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 getting the economy of scale by having two or three backyards do like one big thing and then you you can share that together so greenhouse seed saving and food cooperation among neighbors i say would be my big resilient resiliency ideas i like that you talked a little bit about scale because i've been finding myself thinking so much about about scale recently um during the pandemic because you start to see how um how having things at such a large scale no longer makes sense, right? Um, you know, a very specific example here on Cortez would be the many people that we know who um, harvest shellfish and how now because the shellfish can't be taken to the processing um, facilities that are all off island that um, where they aren't just processed, but they're also kind of certified sellable, we can't then even sell them on island to other islanders. And you just see like, well, that scale maybe in the long run doesn't really work for, for our island. But at the same time, I have a garden that's on the side of a cliff basically with no easy soil. And when I think about growing enough food on the side of that cliff, I think, oh boy, I really wish my neighbor was growing more kale and I could exchange, you know, eggs for it. So I appreciate you talking a little bit more about scale. Um, Mark. Just, just to oh, jump in yeah. on that, try to hold that thought. You know, you could grow your greens and you might be able to grow some herbs on that little cliffside and you might be able to make some microspots. But then if you go and put in the time and the hours to help with the fence and you know, turning over the saws and putting in beds at the neighbor's yard, you know, in a collective, then you can you can have both. Yes. Yes. I love it. By the way, neighbors, I have a lot of eggs. So if you have a lot of greens, we should talk. Um, can 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 scales probably um, something that a lot of people can imagine a definition for. But can can you explain some of the words that you've already used that people may not have a ready definition for? So one, um, you talked about passive houses. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is a passive house? Sure, sure. And I just use the examples of, of some of the passive house strategies just to say you know there's the micro for the individual house but then there's the macro at the community level planning so passive house there's all kinds of uh you know there's a german center called passive house and then there's all kinds of other standards out there but the broad strokes for passive house are passive solar design which means having your windows oriented to the south so that you can capitalize on winter and shoulder season solar gain but making sure that you have an overhang that shades it out in the summer so that it doesn't overheat the house. And the second thing that goes along with that is having some thermal mass. So either a, a tile floor or a, or a concrete floor with in-floor heat or some kind of brick or some kind of material that allows you to sort of like, just like the sidewalk in the summertime, the sidewalk is still warm, you know, at nine o'clock well after the sun has gone down. It holds that heat from the solar gain during the wintertime. Another really key aspect of passive, you know, house design is to have lots of insulation and lots of draft proofing. So make sure that your doors and your windows are well sealed. Make sure that there's no drafts around where the pipes come in and out of your house, your vent pipes, your your drain pipes. 
lots of insulation, particularly on the north side, particularly in the roof. And it's it's remarkable. The house we finished building two years ago is burning just under two cords of firewood, and it's a pretty full-size house, family home, and they keep it nice and warm, but it's using less than two cords of firewood, and it's not using any electricity at all. Compared to lots of places on the island that we all know, you know, might burn four or five cords of fire, which is a huge, it's, which is a huge difference. Um, and then on the, uh, on the non-heating side of things, there's um, hot water use. You can get good quality low flow shower heads now that aren't like the old w- low flow ones where you just got a little piddle out and people didn't really like, but you can get some that are well aerated that you get a real good sense of a shower and using energy efficiency appliance and en- energy efficient appliances like a dishwater dishwasher that's energy star rated washing machine. That's energy star rated using a lot less electricity. And if you're keen, you can go into the supply side. So this is reducing what you use, but you can also go into the supply side where you either generate your own electricity with rooftop solar or if it's if you don't have a roof that's oriented appropriately, maybe you have a spot that you could put some solar panels. The cost of solar panels has dropped immensely over the last you know five to ten years. It's um, the system that we installed two years ago on Siskin Lane is a six thousand watt system, and all in including design, material, and installation came to just under sixteen thousand dollars. The payback for that is going to be about eight years at current electricity prices, so it's a real, a real investment for people who would like to do solar hot water. That's also <clears throat> a cost-effective system, so you can have a preheat on your roof or a system that heats up the ho- all of the hot water. Again, you have to have the roof and space for that. Some people don't want to have solar electricity and solar hot water, so I think all other things being equal, I would say that go for solar electricity first because then you have less systems to maintain. And if you're generating electricity, then that can go and heat up the hot water tank anyway. Um, just just to finish the question on passive solar, the last thing is use uh, um, appliances that are energy efficient, so light bulbs that are LED. There's a whole range of LEDs available now that are not blue or cold that actually have a really good quality light. They're available for all of your under-counter lighting and all the various you know lights that, that, that there are out there. And it's not a bad idea also to have your entertainment systems on a power bar so that you can shut them off at night. Or better still, if you're renovating your house or building a new house, put switches that turn off certain plugs in the house so that you can just at night just shut those switches off and then all your electricity goes goes off. So those are basically, I, I would say, the, the you know, in a real four-minute nutshell, the passive solar, passive house. Ideas. Ideas. And many practical ones that um, any of us can try out, even if we're not ready for new systems or we're renting. Um, What about, can you talk a little bit about the definition that you use when you think about resiliency when it comes to an island, a neighborhood, um, a household? I mean, that's a big question. I mean, resiliency, it's, it's emotional, it's social. It's how do we take care of the elderly people in our neighborhoods? How do we, how do we stand withstand a, a power outage? How do we grow food a little bit more food for the island? It's a really big question. Um, I think it's a whole bunch of things, and I I don't know. I sprang that on him, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more like a more resilient household. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess um, I think. There's a lot of buzzwords that we throw around, right? Um, 
20 years ago when I was first uh, in the ecological movement, we threw around sustainability as a buzzword. I like resiliency a lot more. I think it's a little sexier. I think it's a little bit more of our times. But I also think one of the things that I like about resiliency is that it has this connotation, this kind of emotional well-being connotation, the idea that about thriving, not just surviving. Right. Um, to me, that's built in a little bit. Or about the fact that we know hard things will come. Um, even if we couldn't have imagined that the pandemic was going to come and come so suddenly and so harshly, we could imagine that earthquakes would come or that fires would come and that there would be a time that we would have to get through and that afterwards we would want to go back to something that felt more than just, well, it's sustainable, but that it's abundant, that mm -hmm. it's lovely, that it's full of life. And so mm -hmm. I'm really drawn to this idea of resiliency because it suggests not just that we're going to try to create a better world and a better lifestyle for all of us, but that we are going to um, not just survive through the hard things that are going to come, but find a more essential way to thrive through them. So so that's like all the things that light up in my brain when I say the word resiliency. But I think different things light up in different, you know, in other yeah. people's brains. So yeah, well, I think when you go into someone's home and you're and you're going for a little visit and they go into the pantry and they pull out some canned pickles that they canned or some tomatoes that they canned and they made dinner with food that they saved, that's always like an enlivening and exciting thing. So, and that and that's what and that's what people did in the in the day when they came to live on Cortez in these rural remote areas they had a pantry and a root cellar and they stored food so i think keeping that in mind and i know a lot of cortez folks are really good at that they're growing gardens and they and they preserve a lot of food and stuff so if you're organizing your house or designing your house and you can have a pantry on the north side where it's cool away from the wood stove away from the electric heat like that cold corner of the house and store some foods even if it's not stuff that you can, but stuff that you bought from your neighbors who can, or you traded, or you bought at the co-op, or whatever the case may be. Have the wood stove in the living area, even close to the kitchen if it's possible, so that when you're, you've got a, a fire going and your neighbors are over, or you're just sitting with your family in the house, you can sit by the wood stove, see the fire, you can have a pot of tea or a pot of soup on the stove, kind of close to the kitchen. Those kinds of things make for like a resilient and, I think, co cozy household. Food and shelter, I would say, would be the, you know, thinking about those things would be the big ones. Um, I, I like where you're going with some of these tips that we can all be thinking about, um, no matter, you know, whether, you know, even right now, even as we're all also feeling this this pressure starting about money and what we're going to be able to do um, in the near term. So um, tell, tell us, like, what are some of the other things that, that you're thinking about in your own household that you're really encouraging people, take this step, take this step um, towards your own resiliency, your own food resiliency, you know, just next steps. Get your firewood done a year in advance. So if it takes about 18 months, give or take, for firewood to season to actually be seasoned and so if you go back again back in the old days the the you know the people who are really organized they had their wood organized a year and a half advance because if your wood is dry it makes a lot more heat and if you burn fur that was cut down this year and then you put it in the wood stove right away within a couple of months up to 40 percent of the btus in the wood goes to evaporating the moisture so that it, the wood can burn 
and then you get creosote and and smoky fires and they're hard to light another thing is i think cortez island as a whole we need to start shifting towards burning alder for firewood and and some hemlock as well but alder in particular because if you're growing one hectare of of trees with the intention of using it for firewood you can grow 3.5 times as many btus per hectare per year with alder so three and a half times as much firewood can be grown per hectare if you're burning alder instead of fir and fir it's very hard to grow fir only grows when there's a big blow down event like a wind event or a forest fire or a clear cut so the small projects that we've been doing in the community forest where we do small selective harvests and, and the openings are not very big only the biggest openings have had the fir grow very well the rest of the places the alder and the hemlock and everything else the bracken are overtaking the fir and the fir not growing very well whereas alder grows on its own the deer don't browse the alder but the deer browse the fir so we have to put individual plastic cones on the fir to get them to grow and and get past the deer the way you used to do for cedar that's a bit of an emergent principle so i think that's a big one build a greenhouse build a lean-to so that you can store your wood and 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 dry it out and and uh alder is great if you leave alder on the ground for three or four months it's going to get mycelium in it and it's going to not it just it'll lose its heat but if you can cut the alder split it and get it drying and then burn it it's it's great firewood so i think that's what it's one of my biggest things um i think having an alternative means of cooking if the power goes out for people with electric stoves like our house is a big that's one of our biggest vulnerabilities is if the power is out we can't we basically go get the barbecue and use the camp stove which uses propane which again isn't that resilient because of the value chain or supply chain of getting propane here but there's a thing called a rocket stove and i think probably some people have heard of them but maybe haven't seen them very much it was it was uh kind of invented in at aprovecho in in central oregon by the folks from cob cottage and they built them with the intention of selling them to africa and to third world places so that people could stop using coal in their their homes and cook efficiently with sticks but they've become quite popular and it's interesting um, when we talked about the physical resiliency group doing a folk you presentation, I actually went out to try to buy a couple online and every single supplier worldwide of rocket stoves is totally sold out of stock because of this whole pandemic. And they're there. You can basically cook any size of pot or frying pan on it and you just feed sticks into the bottom. And just because of the design and the way the air comes through, it makes a really hot fire that's really efficient and you can burn small sticks. It doesn't even take cordwood and you can cook on it really effectively. So there's videos online of how you can build them just out of bricks. It's pretty simple. And then once supplies are built up, I think it's a good idea for people to have a rocket stove and you can get them that are portable. And then when you go camping, you just bring the rocket stove or even two of them and then you can cook on it instead of a propane cooker. So that would be a resilient. I um, I have friends who have a rocket stove and use it um, as a large part of how they cook here when they live in a tent for the summer. So um, uh, I like that suggestion. Um, I feel like I'm going to uh, stop feeling bad for not having a propane stove for when the power goes out and, and run and get um, a rocket stove. Uh, what are what? Let's let's go to a little bit of of gardening thinking. Um, you know, I'm really trying to take my garden more seriously. I've been trying to do that for four years, however. Uh, <laughs> and we are going to have someone come and talk to us a little bit more about gardening. When you start thinking about 
systems on Cortez and um, and you know where we can begin in our own homes, but also where we can kind of help take that next step to um, to being a leader in our communities to towards resiliency. Um, give us some ideas for more on that. Every little bit helps. So everything that we do has an effect. Every little drop that lands in the puddle has a ripple effect. And when you have multiple ripples, you can have, surpri- have surprising effects. So there are a few places on Cortez that are that are growing food, some small farms on the island. So I think if we can if we can buy food from those farmers, and if those farmers put a call out for help to build up a fence or to do a work bee, go help them make a plan to buy some food from them and support your local farmers. That I think would be probably be the, the biggest thing I touched on it a little bit at the beginning, having neighborhood level food cooperatives. So getting a few neighbors together who are interested in collaborating. I, I myself find it overwhelming to try to grow all my potatoes and all my beans and all my peas and all my tomatoes and all my basil and all my herbs and all the other things. But if I was growing four or five or six things of my own, but I also in my backyard had a big field of potatoes that all my neighbors were working on together. And I knew that my carrots were being grown at your house and I knew that my squash were being grown at Eli's house. Then you kind of have a bit of a system and it's it's cooperative and it brings the neighbors together and that kind of thing. Um, I think that Tammy's idea that she's posted on the tie line about a squash seed bank is a really fantastic idea. And, And that kind of thing now is a really good time even though we can't gather so much and we can't necessarily go do a lot of work because of the pandemic and we're doing the social distancing and trying to be careful for our community in that way now is a really good time to put our ideas together and bounce our ideas together so that we can actually have a strategy going forward everybody's saying the world's never going to be the same the world is going to change and it's it's never going to go back to the way it was well that most likely is somewhat true but what world do we want and so now is a good time to think about that. I really, um, really appreciate you talking about that, Mark, because I do think, um, you know, this period is sort of like a big tilling almost, right? Like we are, we are, we have just had a major turnover in the soil of our of our creations, right? In the soil of how we think about our world, um, and what, and we have a new chance to to plant some seeds that that will grow. Um, and I, I, that's one of the things I love about Folk University is getting to talk to the amazing neighbors that we have here because there are so many people who've been thinking about this for a long, long time. Because this is not just about the future, right? This is our connection also to the past where we have learned much about what does and doesn't work, particularly in living through hard times, mm-hmm. living in times where diseases are deadly, when we do not know who or what is going to be affected or how badly, where we do not get to rely so easily on the large systems. So um, so I love this idea that there can be some intentionality and that this time can serve a purpose, a purpose towards greater resiliency, towards a brighter future. Um, so I, I love that. And I, I did see... Um, the seed bank idea um, for squash uh, that Tammy had and thought that was just brilliant. Um, Another little thing that we're doing is we have a, 
a, a chicken co-op. So I'm I'm a renter. My partner and 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 our our little family is a we're renting. So we don't ha- necessarily have the ability to set up a whole chicken infrastructure. But we have a neighbor who owns his own place. But one of the things that I've always found is a bit of a, a hurdle to having chickens is you've got to take care of them every single day. You can't be away in the evening. You can't be away in the morning. You have to be there. So by doing it as a little cooperative with the neighbors, you know, it doesn't take that much more infrastructure to have half a dozen more hens or a dozen more hens, but then you can have two or three or four families that are part of the same, same project. And I, th- and when I, when I talk about planning going forward, I know this is a little bit of a jump, but when we do our official community planning and we do our, when we look at our zoning and our revisions to density, having more homes that are clustered. So if there's 10 acres of, of land, then having two or three or four households living on it sensibly with composting toilets and, and efficient uses of water, but having those clustered close to Whale Town and close, close to Manson's and close to Squirrel Cove, then then all of these neighborhoods are much more possible. The chicken co-op wouldn't work if we had to drive 10 minutes to go put in the chickens at night, but because we can walk literally two doors down, that works. So building more dense neighborhoods like the Rainbow Ridge is planning to do in Manson's, I think, is, is a really good step in the right direction. Yes, I like that too. Um, can you, so this is Manda O'Fox Gillespie on Folk You Friday Talks. Um, I am speaking right now with Mark Lombard on Cortez Resiliency, and soon we'll be speaking um, with Eli McKenty on the same topic. You can call in with your questions uh, at 250-935-0200. Zero zero, and we'd also t- love to hear what you're doing. What's your neighborhood? What are you uh, doing for um, cooperation? What are you planning in your own garden? How are you thinking about resiliency and the times to come? And has that changed through um, this COVID nineteen time? Mark, do you have any other thoughts right now for us? Um, ideas, suggestions, things that you would like other people to be thinking about um, planning as we're going through this time um, and, and, but not just like going through this time, but thinking about um, Cortez and resiliency in the long term. I don't necessarily have too many other points that I want to touch on. I, I want to invite Eli to jump in on this conversation um, pretty quick here. I didn't really talk, talk too much about local transportation and, and, and ferries and resilience of getting things to the island. I think what the Clahoose are doing with the shuttle is a really good idea. So more people can can uh, get on the shuttle and drive to town. They don't have to wait in the ferry and bring their own vehicle. Again, if we can like do more things within our own neighborhood so that we can walk around and bike around and we don't have to use as much gas, I think that's a, a pretty big thing. But Eli, if you're... Uh, if you're here, I want to have you jump into that. Might be a good segue. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me on the show. Hi, Eli. Thank you so much for being here. I kind of I got into this. I think Noba asked me to come to one of the meetings, and I've been attending them for a while. Um, I have a, a bit of a background living off-grid in the Kootenays and you know, doing things from scratch in general. But uh, one of my main interests around resiliency on Cortez is around emergency preparedness and fire safety and so on as a member of the fire department. Um, But first, just a little bit about resiliency in general. My approach to it is that the bulk of what I think we 
would like to do to make Cortez more resilient also makes it a more vibrant community and a better place to live. And we don't have to be looking forward to some disaster in order to be motivated to do things that would make it a better place. Um, and that said, I guess the whole pandemic thing has kind of changed the conversation a lot. One of the things we were discussing was how to motivate people to take the possibility of disruption seriously and do something about it. And that's no longer part of the conversation, obviously. So now it's a really good time to to actually do something about it while it's in the public consciousness. And there's still so much that we can do. We, you know, all the personal preparation type stuff and changing your, your home site and all that is easily done in isolation. And uh, I guess some stuff like rocket stoves are a little harder to get right now, but there's lots that can still be done. And I've certainly heard of a lot of people on the island who are out digging their gardens like never before, which is, which is great. I, I just have to take one moment to say that um, I wasn't quite sure how we were going to manage because the studio is very small. And so I've had Eli in the other room just sort of like shoved back there. And now he's he's joined us and he's in basically like the hallway um, outside the door of the recording room. So I, I, you know, I really appreciate our resilience um, in trying to figure out how to take a small station, um, practice good uh, social distancing and um, and also bring this show to you. So um, so it's it's pretty funny uh, to be here. And it's also um just makes me really, really appreciate uh, being together. So thank you for withstanding the less than perfect conditions. And the radio station may be one of the only places left in the country with uh, disinfectant wipes. So <laughs> everything is very clean. Ha ha ha. Also, it seems like there are, there are many reasons to be interested in resilience, uh, earthquakes and fire and climate and pandemics and all that kind of stuff. Some of them are short-term power outages. Some of them are long-term. And some of them could be potentially open-ended. So there's a whole range of different levels of resilience that we should look at. But I'm, I'm in favor of starting small and looking at you know, short-term resilience because without that, why, why would you even bother looking at long-term resilience? Um, and so sort of more to my main topic, in any major disruption, there's going to be limited emergency support from off-island. Most of the provincial and federal resources will be used in areas with higher population density. So we're, we're potentially on our own on the island. And there's not necessarily a whole lot that can be done at the point that uh, were a major forest fire to break out on the island, for instance, without you know, air support and the provincial firefighting machinery getting involved. But there's a lot that we can do in advance if people are, are up for fire smarting their homes and properties. And if we can take a community approach to it, we can really improve the odds. Um, the the provincial and federal governments put out a fire smart 
manual for homeowners, which has got quite a lot of good material in it. And I dropped off some copies of it at the post office today. So if anyone would like to pick one up, they can get it there. It's also available through FireSmart BC and uh, on the federal page as well. Some of the things that are super important are dealing with close vegetation around houses and uh, you know, wood piles shouldn't be against your house, propane tanks, flammable materials in general should be stored at least 30 meters from your house. Um, and, and there's lots of other things. Uh, water supplies and access are major issues for the fire department on Cortez. People with really long driveways that we aren't necessarily able to get our trucks into. Uh, so people with long driveways can look at how they could make their property more accessible or another another approach is if you have a driveway that we can't get our water trucks up consider having water storage that we can at least use when we do make it to your property um, all of these things make it much easier to defend a property against wildfire or to deal with a house fire or chimney fire uh, one of the other benefits to burning dry wood that Mark was bringing up earlier is fewer fire department calls for chimney fires. I, I feel like this is a moment um, where I have to put a uh, call out to Dennis Newcham, or at least a, like a, a psychic call. Um, Dennis, uh, who's been a volunteer fire department member for many years, was um, at my house once, and he told me that in the case of a chimney fire, and please forgive me, Dennis, if I get this wrong at all, but in the case of a chimney fire, you open the stove and you put a glass full of water on the fire and you close it and that it suffocates the fire and the chimney, the, the vapor subs um, su uh, will put out the fire in the chimney by suffocating it. And after that, we had a chimney fire um, at my mom's place and she did... And and I I knew this. She didn't know it, and I knew this. And um, and indeed, it worked. And I just feel like now every week we should have a public announcement that says, if you have a chimney fire, open. Don't climb up onto your roof and try to put water down it. Put put a glass full of water in your stove and close it. So um, that's my two cents yes, for the fire department. A, that's an excellent thing to bring up, and that's uh, the first thing we do when the fire department arrives at a chimney fire. Even if you have already done it, we put a little more water in your stove just in case. Um, anyhow, just, just to say that there is lots that people can do to make their homes and their properties more resilient for forest fires. And, and it's, it also protects your neighbors and your neighborhood and the island at large from fires that could start in your own home. The same fire smart principles will uh, slow the spread of fire away from a home as well as towards the home. So they're, they're quite important. Uh, and it's not, it's not confirmed yet, but it sounds like the insurance companies are likely going to start assessing the fire smart status of homes and determining insurance rates based on it. So there may soon be a, a financial incentive as well. Um, and and the homeowner's manual lays out 
a lot of the stuff to be done and there are people on the island who who can help with it as well i know matt kushana has been doing fire smarting for people and others i think mark has been helping with some of that too do you have the website there uh which one uh, is accessible from firesmartbc.ca, and I don't have an exact link to the. I I the will get the exact link and um, put it on the program notes um, on cortezradio.ca. Uh, um, um, so, I've heard of some neighborhoods that get together and then invest in some fire. Uh, water support systems of their own. Have you heard of this, and what would something like that look like? Certainly. There are actually a couple projects underway on the island around that right now. Um, And uh, I was actually talking to our fire chief about one of them this morning. He, Mac Diver, is, is quite happy to talk to people who would like to organize a community protection plan and uh, help make sure that it's done in a way that's easy for us to make use of if we're responding to a call in the area. But uh, typically it involves improving access. It's good always to have two routes in and out of anywhere so you can't get trapped or blocked in or out. And uh, water storage, so tanks, you know, preferably in the five to 10,000 gallon range, but any, any amount is is good to have um, stand pipes and some way of accessing it and also then being aware of the levels of undergrowth and and brush and the basic fire smarting for the for the forest around homes and areas where people are where there's things that need to be protected um, and um how Eli, how much can we do about the lands um, on Cortez that are either publicly owned or where there haven't been people living there for a long time? So um, and maybe it doesn't even matter so much if they're not right up against a house, but, but there's a lot of lands on Cortez that um, are, you know, perhaps not uh, the ideal um, areas for for fire safety, um, but are not you know are not owned by neighbors that are actually there. Is there anything we can do about those? That's an interesting question and something that I have thought about fairly often. Um, the amount of labor and financial investment for the type of thinning and undergrowth chipping and all of that that is recommended is quite high. So. It doesn't seem at the moment like it's particularly feasible to do that on a large scale, and it would tend to disrupt the ecosystem as well. I think historically, the the natural process is that fires come through and they clear out all the all the fuel, and then it gradually builds up again over a period of years until there's another large fire event. But because fire suppression is now fairly effective, it means that the fuel ends up building up to levels that you wouldn't see in a totally natural forest setting. Um, And I believe that forest management is starting to take that into account a bit more. That would be something that Mark could maybe speak to. But I know one thing that I've 
discussed with people and would like to see further progress on is if there would be ways of at least thinking about strategic large-scale fire breaks, like uh, potentially based on areas of community forest that were to be cut and the lakes and you know, pasture land, just if there were ways that we could we could uh, develop fire lines in the case of a major fire and segment the island into portions. But uh, that's that's a long ways off at this point, I think. And I'll pass the phone to, or the microphone to Mark here. I just wanted to ch chime in a little bit of the thinning and fuel load reduction um, projects in the community forest. We have spent uh, the last couple of years looking for funding from the Union of BC Municipalities and the provincial government. And while there are large pools of funding available right now for that, they're typically focused in the areas that are the, of the highest concern, so the interior and southern Vancouver Island. But there isn't really very much available for our area. Um, there is a pilot project that the community forest is supporting that is going to do a community wildfire protection plan for the Clahoos First Nation and also do a pilot project to do some fuel load reduction and thinning in the community forest around the recycling center, which is considered one of the higher priority areas from the 2011 community wildfire protection plan. And we are looking that when we do a project, for example, our next harvest, whenever that is, we don't know when that will be because of, because of the way things are in the world right now in the, uh, in the Coulter Bay area on the western boundary of the the harvest project we would like to treat three or five hectares and do a thinning project there as part of the logging because it's extremely expensive like eli said it's five to ten to twelve thousand dollars per hectare depending on the conditions of the site and the access to the site and so if you are just taking out small small wood that would barely even be firewood, which would be expensive to get out and then get to people, it wouldn't be economic. There wouldn't be any profit in it. So we'd have to roll it into a, a harvest. So we are looking at that. But unfortunately, we're not in the highest priority areas and there isn't any funding available. And with the small scale, light touch and infrequent logging we've done in the community forest, we just don't have a pool of money to allocate to that. But I do want the community to know that that is at the forefront of our concerns and planning and policy and the board of directors is, is certainly aware of that and it's it's uh, something we'd like to integrate into our projects going forward. <laughs> okay, things aren't necessarily perfect as we move mics and um, things like that between speakers, so I'm sorry for whatever that sound just was. Um, um, and also, Mark wanted to add that Quadra Builders um, does sell a range of um, shapes and sizes of tanks and cisterns for water storage, which is something that I at least think a lot about in terms of resiliency, both for fire, but also if we had any long-term power outages, which I would assume would come along with fire, but would also come along with earthquake and just really realistically people on Cortez. We all know that power outages can be prolonged for more reasons than all um, natural disasters even. So um, I think a lot about water capacity and water storage um, anyway. And so I think adding the kind of fire aspect to it um, is is an important part too. And if if there were forest fires uh, on Cortez, if they 
um, if a forest fire was to start on Cortez, what are some of the things that we can do in the moment to try to protect our homes? And um, and would we be able to stay on the island um, through a forest fire, or would the air quality get to the point we would have to evacuate? Most of the large-scale forest fire-related planning exercises we've done on the island would involve mass evacuation. Um, but there are a lot of things that can be done, and one of the things that can be quite effective is if you have fire-smarted your property and you have a sprinkler set up. Even if, it, even if your pump goes out before the fire actually hits, uh, an effective sprinkler setup can create basically a humidity bubble around your property. And there's fairly amazing examples of properties having survived even in the much typically much more intense interior fires that have had sprinkler protection. Um, often it'll be a setup with a small gas-powered pump and either a pond or a water tank, and then you can get... Uh, roof mount sprinklers or even sprinklers that just hook onto your gutters and protect protect your house. So that can be quite effective and that's something that can be turned on as you're as you're being evacuated and left running and uh, they can they can run for 10 or 12 hours or more depending on how they're configured. Um, a couple more important points the my understanding is that in the event of a large wildfire on Cortez, the the local fire department would mostly be responsible for actually protecting structures. The provincial forestry firefighters aren't equipped to be uh, dealing with the toxic smoke and stuff from a structure fire. So they would be dealing with the forest fire portion of it. And we're not equipped to be able to protect more than three or four homes at a time under normal circumstances. So the amount of fire smarting prep that people can do in advance makes a huge difference. And, uh, you know, if, you're, if your property is really well protected and looks like it's a safe area, we might even use it as a staging point, which would probably be good for it. So yeah, 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 I, lucky, I lucky, lucky I those people. encourage too strongly fire smart preparations and uh, there are people on the island who can help with it and I'm happy to talk to people about it and I think Mac is as well and just make sure there people know there's lots you can do and uh, it's a it's a can seem like a really huge task but it all helps and you know it's a good time to get started. Um, I think it becomes more and more uh, on people's minds, too, living through even a pandemic, which may seem completely unrelated. But I can't help to think that, um, you know, anything that's already stretching our resources makes us all that much more vulnerable as as an island kind of way out here that rarely do we fall in anyone's highest priority for um, for funding or for necessarily attention other than our own because we care um, about our home and and this and you know and making it the beautiful wonderful sustainable place that uh, we want it to be um, Eli I have other questions for you though too um, one still on the fire department aspect um, 
how much do you guys think about and have plans for things like earthquakes as well or other um, kind of ongoing events that um, and what are the chances that there would be fires on Cortez as part of a major earthquake? Um, the fire department participates periodically in uh, exercises with the regional district emergency coordinator and other agencies like RCMP and BC Ambulance and so on. Uh, we don't specifically train for earthquake-related emergencies, but uh, it is definitely something that we consider around our our preparedness as a fire department and being able to continue serving the community as a fire department if there were an event like a major earthquake. Um, and I think it is entirely possible that a major earthquake would result in structure fires or wildfires depending on the season. So there definitely is a, a risk there and we do coordinate with the the regional district over planning for that. And there are there safe hubs on the island where people can go um, in, you know, after an earthquake um, where there will be water and kind of the basics uh, for them um, if they need them? There are, I think, identified emergency gathering points. I believe the Clahoose is one, the community center there, and the Cortez Island School. Um, I'm not sure about the Manson's Hall, and I don't have the list in front of me, but it is something that that is part of the planning. Okay, on a slightly different note, um, one of the things that you and your family are known for uh, is your music. And I think that, you know, when we talk about resiliency, and I think we can all especially relate to this right now going through COVID-19 um, and the pandemic, I think about how important it is that we have fun and that we have ways as a community to celebrate, to nurture ourselves and each other, to come together, um, whether it's virtually or in real life, but for fun, for joy, for celebration. Um, and I want your advice, Eli. Like, what are some of the things that you think about that you're doing, like in that other part of your life, um, that is about about celebration, that is about making sure we have ways to sustain ourselves through hard times that are just about taking care of the heart? That's not a question I'm prepared for. <laughs> One Sorry. thing that comes to mind immediately is I think that along with localizing food production and the rest of our physical capacities and needs, that local culture is equally important. So local music and storytelling and celebration and gatherings when they're not uh, prohibited by health concerns. But uh, I think people playing music for themselves and for their friends is super important and empowering and sort of moving away from depending on culture as fed to us from the outside world is, is wonderful. I think Cortez Radio is a good a good local step in that direction and it's a it's a pretty 
musical island, really, if you think of all the people who play music and perform at the coffee houses and the, the dances and so on. So I think it's, Cortez has a lot going for it that way, and I think it's super important. And doing it, doing it just for fun, even if you don't think you're a musician, it's, it doesn't really matter in my opinion. Um, I, 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 I took a, my a piano lesson the other day on Zoom, uh, <laughs> which was a, a really new and different experience. But as someone who didn't start trying to be musical until I was into my 40s, um, I, even though I hadn't practiced in a solid three weeks because of this pandemic, I felt very proud of myself. Um, so I, I, I would like to not have to ever um, do it on Zoom again, but I do uh, appreciate that um, we are, you know, that, that music is this timeless element and that maybe we can start taking back our responsibility and, um, for beauty um, for connection in a different way and not just use this time to turn over even more of our power and connection to the internet or to, which is vulnerable, right? Like, I mean, it may be the answer right now, but it's certainly not going to be our answer through, um, you know, through every crisis, um, through an earthquake, through many other uh, situations that may confront us in the future. So, uh, so I like that, and I appreciate that about you. I am hoping that there are people out there who have their own ideas and suggestions about about resiliency, about thriving through hard times. I'd love to hear how people are are what they're doing right now um, in their homes, how they're preparing, what they're thinking about, and what they have been thinking about even before this, as far as um, resiliency. So um, while you are thinking about that and contemplating calling in to Cortez Radio at 250-935-0200, it is safe for you to call in because when you call, you will just speak with me. And then if you want, I can try to put you on air, but you don't need to go on air. So um, there's a number of things I have to do even to get you on air. So you are safe and free to just call in and share some of your ideas, your resources, your thoughts, um, et cetera, um, on this conversation or, you know, just about any other. Um, so uh, Mark and Eli, do you have last thoughts or things that um, came to mind as the other person was speaking that you would like to to share? I think uh, what comes to mind is that this is, aside from being really challenging times for a lot of people, it's also an amazing opportunity to take the time to do what we know we should as far as being resilient and strengthening our sense of community and our our local culture and so many other things that this has brought more focus to. Grow food, save seeds, get to know your neighborhood, get to know who's saving seeds in your neighborhood, and trade skills and share. And I'm glad you guys talked about the music because my guitar sits 
pretty idly a lot of the time because like Eli said, I think of myself as not a musician, but maybe this weekend I'll pick it up, and play some tunes. Boy, I would just, I, I love the idea that maybe each of us in our own homes is somehow adding to, um, you know, to this, to this Cortez choir um, or this Cortez orchestra response uh, to what's been going on. Um, also, uh, one of the things that I've been very excited about that um, leads well into this conversation is that um, Eitan Novak, as part of a response to um, the the calls that um, Nova's been doing and to the resiliency um, planning, has begun to set up um, an, an basically an easy way for neighborhoods to organize and email and contact each other. So uh, look for more in the next couple days on Tideline. I'll also put a link um, in these show notes. But basically, Smelt Bay is already um, getting some attention because they have started organizing themselves um, you, with Aton's help, um, I believe. If I'm getting anything wrong, I apologize. Uh, so that there's a group that can be in touch, that they can share resources. Hey, I have extra eggs. Hey, I have extra kale. Um, start planning together as a neighborhood for their fire smartness, their resiliency, their food networks and hubs. And communication, I find, is one of those things that we often take for granted that, oh, yeah, it won't be, I can just pick up the phone or I can just run over there. And I think we've really seen through just even this um, time, this pandemic time, that it is very easy for, for communication to start breaking down. Um, all of a sudden, we've entered a time where not everyone even has access anymore to a computer. Our libraries are closed every day. Um, I feel really thankful that the radio is still allowing me to do this show. It's still broadcasting so that we have a way to get these messages out. We have Tideline for those who have access to the computer. But the more ways that we are connected with our neighbors, um, having an easy way to email them, knowing what their phone numbers are, going to... um, you know, making those connections and getting face to face with them before uh, things, um, you know, are really important, you know, dire are important. And also this sort of cataloging of who's doing what, who's prepared in what ways, even just knowing that before we've taken the steps um, is really, is, you know, is hugely important in these times. And so um, once again, there are some new tech solutions that will be, you know, hopefully relatively easy for most people to be able to participate in that are coming. So, um, you know, let's let's uh, watch that and pay attention for that. Um, again, I would love to hear from you. Um, we would all love to hear from you as to what your neighbors, what your neighborhood is doing, what you're thinking about um, in terms of resiliency. Give us a call here at Cortez Radio. or send an email um you know let us know what you're thinking and and what you're doing at home i am going to perhaps successfully play a song now to give you a chance to call in at 0200 um and for Um, us to prepare for the next part of the show so this is the part of the radio that always gets a little bit complicated where I have to do two things at once which are talk and use machinery 
So let's see what happens. You're listening to CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio at 89.5 FM. And on the web, CortezRadio.ca, radio that rocks. Get your weekend party toes tapping and body moving with Friday's Lunchtime Locomotion with Nat King Kono. Tune in 11 to 1 for round-the-world upbeat tunes exploring pop, rock, jazz, fusion, and world beat. Nostalgia and adventure, spirits lift with the Lunchtime Locomotion. Fridays, 11 to 1, here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. Blues at its most, Muddy Waters. Rather than I'm grown, 
Just tuned into Radio CKTZ. We put the freaking frequency, the modern modulation, the high and high fidelity, and the trans. Sorry, guys, that wasn't the smoothest transition. <laughs> um, I am um, to celebrate uh, Eli McKenty being here to talk to be one of the two people talking about resiliency on Cortez. Um, I thought this would be a great opportunity to announce that the Mary McKenties have um, rebranded and come together under the new name, The Awakeneers. And they have a brand new song um, that I am going to, to play for us. Uh, I also would love to use the Folk You Friday talk show, which is primarily a talk show, but um, I'd love to use it as an opportunity to highlight all local musicians. Uh, we've got so m- much to celebrate here, so much to share. Um, so I'm hoping that you can help me with that by sending some of your suggestions, uh, your new songs, your new works, things like that. And I will slowly figure out how to um, 
work those in and actually use the technology uh, in order to play them. So this new song is called Singing Spring by the recently branded Awaken Years. The earth and the sweetness in the air All the plants in the garden And all the flowers everywhere Are singing spring The brightness of the world 
by the newly minted Awakeneers, formerly known as the Mary McKenties, our own local source of music and entertainment, one of many talented bands and groups on our little island. This is Folk You Friday Talks on Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. I'm Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and I am honored and proud to be here today um, for my second live call-in radio show. We've had a wonderful start to the show so far. Um, we've heard from Mark Lombard and Eli McKenty about some of the things that um, islanders have been thinking about and preparing in terms of island resiliency. We've got um, more to come. We're going to get some gardening advice later. And I would also like to share some of the things that um, have been really inspiring and encouraging me. And I'd love to hear from you. Call in today at 250-935-0200. Let me know how you're doing what you're doing, what your neighborhood's up to, what you've seen, the way that the spring is calling to you, um, the good news that you've seen, or even in, you can call and just have a voice on the other end. I have to call and reach out to someone many times a day um, because where I am naturally uh, pretty upbeat and um, yeah, and pretty connected, um, I I just find that more often than usual, I really need to reach out to other people so that I can um, come back to my own family and to my young children and to the work that I do in the community and be my usual uh, self. Um, and I just need safe places every once in a while to go and um, and to talk. So you can call here. Anytime you want. At, um, but I am here on Fridays from 1 to 3 at 250-935-0200. Uh, and we're trying out one of the first Cortez call-in radio shows. So call in. You don't go directly on the air. You get to talk to me for a little bit first. And if you want to go on the air, I probably can figure out how to make that happen. I did manage to do it a few times last week. So um but it's, it's not mandatory. Um, I, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that these are tough times for many, many people. Um, today I got a message from some of my friends who are Guatemalan um, and live in Guatemala. And I just woke up to the fact that in Guatemala, on top of COVID-19 pandemic, they've been dealing with a dengue fever outbreak. So um, Guatemala is one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. 80% of that country lives below the poverty level. The people that I know best in that country 
um, live below the poverty level. And every day there is perhaps, um, you know, what we think about uh, in the in the places where I know of what we think about as sort of post-apocalyptic times with no banks, um, very little access to um, electricity, the web, uh, any of the things that we have gotten quite used to. Um, the land, the ability to grow much of our own food. So in this country, where already 80% of the people live below the poverty line, there are many people, um, most people, who are losing their jobs. Um, and it's already a country where uh, many people die of hunger and hunger-related diseases and causes, and that is just going to go up. So my thoughts go out to to all those people around the world. Um, and I also am just reminded about how lucky we are. We are lucky that we have these abundant oceans, this beautiful fertile land, um, a government that has not been ravaged by years and years of civil war. Um, and I also want to really take a moment for to remember those of us who are most vulnerable. Um, you know, the, not just the elderly, but also the elderly, the weak, the sick. And to to remind ourselves that last week there were eight suspected overdose deaths in Vancouver. That's the most since 2019. Um, and the city uh, in the lower mainland, the officials want to remind us that we are in the midst of two major health crises crises in BC right now. The COVID-19 pandemic, which we are all facing um, and feeling the weight of, but also the opioid crisis. Um, and that has been declared a public health emergency nearly four years ago. And we may feel that we are less vulnerable to that one, but I want to just be conscious of the fact that, that prevention, um, all the things that we're doing to keep and help keep and prevent um, the COVID-19 pandemic from spreading to keep ourselves safe are um, in many ways be, uh, making the opioid crisis uh, worse um, for some people. So it's a scary time. It's a scary time for first responders, for social and healthcare workers, for our most vulnerable, for those who are addicted and homeless, um, for those who don't have family living with them, who are not near friends, who are unable to leave their homes because of their vulnerable health state. And I, I want to just say that I am thinking of you, that we all can send out our thoughts um, towards, towards each other right now. So take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Limit the scary news. Get outside. Call up your neighbor. Call into your local radio show. That is 250-935-0200. Uh, and I feel really lucky because I get to um, announce some good news. We have lots of good news happening here on Cortez Island and nearby. People trying to do something. Um, to plant those seeds in the time of this um, of this turning, this great turning. Um, so one of those is Christine Robinson. She is asking everyone to consider uh, spending a few minutes in meditation, prayer, or reflection 
every day at 9 a.m. Um, because collectively, our intentions matter. And so I really love the idea of that little bit of good news. Um, all right, we have a call coming in. So I am just going to put the music on for a minute. But this is probably our, our chance to get some gardening advice. One moment. Footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. Waiting for you now, dear. On my old front door, I don't hear it. Does it mean you don't love me anymore? I hear the clock are ticking on the mantel shelf. Well, if I've done everything well, 
uh, and correctly, then we have with us on the phone line, Kate Archibald. Kate, are you there? I'm here, yeah. I did it! Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to take a moment to pat myself on the back. <laughs> uh, so Kate is joining us today to talk to us about one of the things that she's been up to in her garden and to sell us on leeks, um, the, the magic vegetable. Kate, tell us a little bit more. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> yeah, I actually started my leek seeds um, a few weeks ago, but I counted all the little seedlings today just to make sure there was enough and I would have started more because I love them so much. And um, it's definitely not too late to plant them if you want to gr- try growing some leeks this year. And um, I love them because they don't really take up too much space compared to some other vegetables. And um, they're really easy to grow. They're, I mean, well, they're not that hard to grow. And um, it's not that hard to get seed, I don't think. I mean, I haven't, I don't know for sure but I, if they have any left, but I know that Linnea grows really amazing leek seed. And so you can buy leek seed from them. That is really awesome. And you can, that way, you're, you know, you're supporting local seed saving and local seed savers, which is so great. And um, I think they're a super underappreciated vegetable. Do you use them very often, Amanda? Do you cook with leeks? I, I do. I love leeks. Oh, good. Um, okay. I haven't managed to grow them yet i've been i'm just easily intimidated in the garden so i'm going to use this as my opportunity to to grow them um and i i yeah i love them i find that they um last longer and are easier in some ways to use than onions but mostly i just use them similarly i would be open for suggestions for other ideas well the one thing the one thing that I, i i um get really um worked up about with leeks is that you can totally eat the green parts do you eat the green parts, too? I do. I eat all of it. Okay, good. Okay, good. Because a lot of people don't know that you can eat the green parts. And when you look at it that way, um, growing in your garden, it's a lot of food. And they're not like the green, the, de- the tips of the leaves can be a little bit tougher. But if you have a nice sharp knife, and you don't even have to be that sharp, and you just, you know, slice across, crosswise across the fibers and then give them a light saute, they're so lovely and so edible. And so hardy, they're like a super hardy winter vegetable to have um, in the ground here on this island. They'll, I think I've been growing them, this is maybe the 12th season that I've grown leeks in the garden here, and I've never had them wiped out by like a tough freeze or anything so far. Um, Some people really mulch them a lot, but, and I've mulched, I mulched them a bit, I think, but I remember um, Carol Tiddler telling me once that she didn't think it, w- it was a, good, a great thing to mulch them because if there was a really hard freeze and then, then that kind of lasted for a while maybe and then when the thaw came, there would be all this kind of like moisture uh, held right up tight or against the leaks, tender outer layers, and so maybe mulching them Anyway, you can mulch them or not, but um, yeah, they're really easy, and they last in the in the ground all winter. I actually just harvested the last of my leeks this week, and um, I wish I had planted more last year. They were the ones that I harvested this week were kind of like a couple of them were just beginning to send up little flower uh, stalks, just 
just the beginning, right at the very base, I could see it starting. So if I had more leeks, I could probably be harvesting them for like another month until May, which is amazing. Cause, and it's, it's one of, I mean, this time of year, especially if you're eating the green part, it's this awesome fresh green vegetable that um, you can be harvesting out of the garden right now besides kale <laughs> or nettles, you know, it's like another flavor, another green flavor that you can, you can have in your garden. Um, so yeah, I just think they're really great. I think it's so awesome that Linnea saves um, and sells leek seed because it's a, I think it's kind of a, a big deal. I think they have to grow at least 50 plants and let at least 50 plants go to seed to get enough genetic diversity to make good seed. And um, yeah. Yeah, so um, I love leeks. I would recommend everybody try, have a have a go at growing leeks. <laughs> if so, can could I direct sow seed right now? Um, I don't know. I think I don't. I don't really. Maybe you could. I think it's maybe a little early to direct sow them. I think people who are going to direct sow them might wait until the end of April or May. But um, but may, actually, it's April now. Hey, so maybe you could. I would maybe ask somebody else about that, but I think you could start them. Um, I think it's easier to start them in little pots uh-huh. and have them as little starts because they're, they don't grow very fast in the beginning. They start out pretty small and, and grow pretty uh, slowly at the beginning. So um, if you had them outside in the ground now as a winter vegetable, it would be a lot of time of having like from April all the way through to winter, you'd have to be kind of, you know, tending to them and keeping them weeded and everything. So I usually <clears throat> keep them in their little pots until maybe early May, plant them out in early May. And then um, how, like, can you just talk to us a little bit about how you take them from pots into the ground? I, I feel like this is a very beginner question, but oh, this sure. is the kind of stuff that I get stuck on. Yeah. Um, well, they're, they're, I know, you know, some vegetables, are their, their roots are very sensitive, like squashes or watermelons. When you transplant them, you want to be super careful that you don't um, damage their roots too much. But leeks are not like that. Um, uh, like I, what I have right now is I have little pots that are maybe like four inches deep and three, four inches wide, and I have like 40 or 50 little leeks crammed into each pot. And the, the, they're only about like two inches two, three inches tall right now, the, the little baby leeks. And maybe I'll plant them out when they're like six or seven inches tall. And I might pot them up to larger pots before I put them in the ground. Um, but I, yeah, I used, I used to work in Nor, uh, for Nori Gardening. And what she had us do was um, uh, take them out of the pots and kind of shake off the soil off of their roots and separate them and you know one by one and then we would actually trim their roots a little bit um so that they were just you know maybe a couple inches of root and you can just i don't know if you anyway you could do that or not do that but i don't i can't remember if i always do that but i probably do and um trim them to a couple inches and then um you can just poke a little hole in the 
soil with a stick and then just pop the leek in there and um, give them a bit of water. And that's it. You don't even necessarily have to kind of pack the dirt back in around them. Um, just that, that's it, really. And how close can they be then in your garden? Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think I usually do like a bed that's maybe three feet wide. I'll, I'll put three rows of leeks in that bed. And within each row, I'd maybe space them about two or three inches apart. Yeah. And then do you plant them just like just leeks um, all together in one bed or do you put other things in with them? I just do all leeks all together in one bed. I think other people, I've seen other people um, kind of mix it up a little more, but I, I, I just put them all together in one bed. And then so if we plant now, we basically will get to start eating them in the fall and then through the winter. Yeah, I, I, I never grow summer leeks. But there are varieties out there that are grown for eating in the summer, and I think they mature a little faster. Um, so if you had some of those seeds, you could plant them and um, uh, eat them in the summer. I like yeah. this because I, I like to do scallions um, and green oh, yeah. onions, and so I feel like those never really last that long for me. Um, ah. So this, I feel like, might actually go well together. I'll have my early, um, you know, scallion-type onion plants and then my late leeks. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. And then what do you, do you have tips for... Um, dealing with all the dirt that gets down in between the the leaf greens oh yeah well i've i yeah there's a what i like to do is i just okay i go out into the garden and i make sure i try to make sure that i bring a knife or my pruners with me because then i can cut off the little i'll pull out the leak and cut off the root ball right there and then if there are any kind of damaged or yucky outer leaves i'll just rip them off right there in the garden and I usually just leave them in the leak bed and kind of they kind of add to the mulch I guess of the bed and then I bring the leaks inside and I uh, use a I don't know if this is a super safe knife thing to do but um, I hold the leak and I use a knife to kind of cut basically cut the leaf in half top to bottom while I'm holding it in my hand I kind of move it along through the knife to kind of split it in half so that I have two halves. And then um, I just keep holding on to those two halves and uh, get the cold water running and ruffle ruffle the layers around under the cold water and rinse away the dirt. Yeah. Uh, And that usually works. My kids would be if they were here. They could tell you whether that was a safe knife um, yeah, technique might not or be not. Safe. <laughs> <Probably> not. <laughs> oh, they're fine with knives. They let me know when I'm oh, not okay. doing things right. Oh, okay. Um, but I, yeah, but we're not. That does mean that Cortez Radio is telling children that they can no. play with knives. No, no, not sanctioned on the radio. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is really exciting. Um, yeah. I'm I'm going to plant some leek seeds. 
inside and try transplanting them. You've inspired me. Um, and oh, yeah. I think that Linnea still does have seeds. I don't know um, how or when they're going to make them available to the public, but okay. I will try to find that out and we'll also add that into our show notes um, with anything that I can remember uh, else that Kate Archibald has shared with us today. Uh, thank you so much, Kate. Yeah, for you're welcome. My pleasure. Getting us excited about leaks and uh, taking the time to be on Cortez Radio. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. All right. I'm going to say goodbye to you somehow simultaneously as I um, talk to people. Bye. Bye. Let's see. Am I still here? It looks like I am. Another successful transition. I I am celebrating inside. I, this is a good chance for me to say that multiple times this week I thought back to what I could remember of Haley's talk and the tips that she shared last week on uh, Folk You Friday uh, Cortez radio talk. Um, and one of the things that she told us is that it's okay when we are feeling nervous to just name our feelings out loud. Um, and I, for one, have had a lot more feelings um, these days uh, with everything going on with this pandemic. So I am practicing what I'm learning. Um, and I think I'm going to remember even more from this show. I was so nervous last week that I didn't remember everything perfectly. Luckily, Haley and Maureen from last week um, and Yulia all shared their notes And those are now on or will be very shortly on CortezRadio.ca. And also, um, some of them were also on Tideline. And I think they will also be on CortezCurrents.ca. I want to remind you that Folk University has taken Folk You Friday to Cortez Community Radio right here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. Every Friday from 1 to 3, um, we neighbors continue to share their interests, their passions, their skills with each other over the airwaves, virus-free airwaves. You are encouraged to call in every week, contribute, ask questions, share your program ideas. You can do that by calling 250-935-0200. You may also call after I go off the air at three o'clock um, because I will still be here for a few moments after afterwards and I won't be controlling the soundboard and all that stuff and I can take your ideas your tips your suggestions or just talk to you hear how you're doing share how I'm doing that kind of thing I would love to hear what you're doing around personal resilience during this time um, I'd love for more uh, gardeners to share their tips you don't have to be an expert you just need to know more than I do, which is pretty much everyone. Um, Or if you have other tips or things that you would like to share on future shows, call, let me know. Um, April 10th, we are going to do a whole show on building soil fertility with local resources. We're going to learn more about biochar, compost, um, and more with Whitney Vanderleest, permacultural enthusiast and owner of New Branch Permaculture. On April 17th, we'll have Haley Newell, RTC, who was here last week, um, giving us little tips about dealing with 
fear during the pandemic time. And she's going to be talking next week about the nervous system 101. Um, she did a talk on Brain 101 at Folk U that was extraordinary. Um, I really suggest tuning in to hear more about the nervous system, um, what nervous system health looks like, what is it, what uh, what does the nervous system do for us, what are the buzzwords like regulation and resilience, what do they mean um, from a nervous system perspective, and how we can tend to this amazing part of our body. On April 24th, we're going to learn more about the marine environment around Cortez with naturalist, diver, and boat guide Mike Moore. And every week we'll be bringing tips for your garden um, and other suggestions. So please do tune in uh, to Cortez Community Radio every Friday from 1 to 3. You can get the full schedule at folku.ca. And you can also tune in to cortezradio.ca for more information and program notes afterwards. I want to share um, for the last couple minutes that we have together a little bit more of the good news that is happening um, and the creative uh, projects and things that people have been bringing to us on the island. Um, Tess, who many of you know because she's been helping us for the last while in the pharmacy on Cortez, also does a lot with um, youth art. Uh, and I am so excited that she is organizing a kids art show and project. The theme is rustic driftwood. So this is something that you can all child and non-child alike do at home. Here are the instructions. You go to the beach, you find a unique flattish piece of driftwood, you use acrylic paint to freestyle paint inspired paintings onto the wood. For the actual show, um, Tess will be collecting the pieces in July and hanging them at the co-op. Um, she's going to take care of what needs to be done to hang them. And if the cafe is still closed during that time, then, uh, then she may just take pictures of the pieces and they'll be available online. And maybe they'll even still be able to hang in the co-op. Each piece of artwork should have a corresponding tag. This is a fun project in itself. So after doing the driftwood, cut paper into two inches by four inches, and then write on it the name of the artwork, the name of the artist, and if it's for sale, the price, and then an email of the parent. You don't have to sell your pieces. That's up to the individual artists if they want to, to do that. Um, you can say not for sale if they're not for sale. Um, I uh, just would like to take a moment to appreciate, Tess, um, you putting this wonderful idea together. Uh, I am, for one, looking for more things to do with my, with my children, and I like this um, getting out there uh, idea. Um, also, very exciting times. Um, uh, Tess isn't the only one coming up with ways that we can help. Samantha Staten runs the food bank. We have already hundreds of extra dollars have been raised for the food bank. You too can donate to the food bank, um, non-perishable items or cash donations. You can drop off um, checks to the post office. For the food bank, uh, attention Samantha Staten, and they will get to her. And if you need help, please don't hesitate to reach out to the food bank right now. 
This isn't the only charity that um, is is going to be struggling and needing your support during these hard times. As if you are one of the lucky few on the island who has an income and continues to have an income through these times, I'm sure that just about all of the charities who are trying to and finding ways to stay open are going to be struggling. I know, for instance, the radio station um, is staying open, but they've already had to cancel all of their usual spring um, fundraisers. So this will be a rough time for for the radio station as well as many other um, charities on the island. So if this is a time where you can give a little extra, consider consider the food bank, the radio station, Foci, those other nonprofits who are out there who could use your help. And I'm super impressed by Dancing Wolf. He put an ad on Tideline recently um, volunteering his time to help those uh, in need who need a little bit of help. Those might be single parents who are still working. What a rough time. If you're home alone with your children, there is nothing for the kids now on Cortez. And there are many single parents who are still working um, and need to work f- to survive. So um, so Dancing Wolf is, is volunteering his help for those single parents, for the elderly, for those who are sheltering in place, for the frontline workers, for the servers and cashiers, all those people who are going to work every day. Um, his number is 6569, and his email is ihar at net. And he's volunteering two-hour segments of his time. Uh, and he's got a great picture on Tideline of himself on his bicycle with his ladder. So um, not too hard of labor. Dancing Wolf is no spring chicken. Um, and But thank you for that positive way of um, of being of service. And and I would like to put a little call out to Esther, who runs the Tideline. Um, Esther is working behind the scenes all the time and extra hard right now. And I've really noticed um, a change uh, in the last week or so, that Esther has made a lot of additional effort to get some of these good news stories out there. And she has um, started a Who is Your Hero section on the Tideline. She says, write me a story about your local hero or call and interview them. Send a photo to her if you can, and we'll post that on the Tideline too. We all need a bit of happy news these days to balance things out a bit. So let's put some people in the spotlight. This is what Esther says. And I, I am so thankful for this creative suggestion. She says, so, t- you know, take a moment. Let's interview those people, the often behind the scenes, um, everyday individuals who make this island so, so special. And I, uh, Esther said I was not allowed to interview her for it, but I am taking this moment to thank you, Esther, for, for all the work that you do to help keep us connected. And thank you for you, for each and every one of you on Cortez. There are so many invisible heroes right now. And if nobody else says thank you, I would like to say thank you. It takes an unknown amount of bravery every day to to live and thrive and survive, to choose the high road, to reach out to someone, particularly someone who maybe 
you don't like that much, who maybe you don't agree with, who maybe you question their choices or their decisions. Reach out to them anyway, especially reach out to them. Let's use this time to become a little closer, to become a little bit more of the community we want to be and could be. Thank you for joining me today on my second Folk You Friday talk radio show. Um, And thank you for being my neighbor. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie on Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. Don't forget, you can continue to call in even after I hang up and give me suggestions for future shows at 250-935-0200. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing, and thank you for spending the last little time with me.